Thanks for listening to the Stimulate Run podcast. If you like what you hear, remember to subscribe, leave a rating and a review. If you would like to get in touch or have future guest suggestions, please make contact via email or slide into DMs on any of the social channels. Here's your host, Erwin, with this episode's guest. All right, everybody. I am very happy to have today's guest on. I actually got to meet um, this person, this person in person, um, a couple of months ago, and I think I hit him up straight away to ask if he'd be interested in being a guest on the podcast. And from a distance, I've always admired him, um, and I'm lucky enough to say that he will be the last guest of 2021. Adam Didick, welcome to the Stimulate Run podcast. Thanks, everyone. Great to be here. Yeah, I've, I've been an admirer from a distance, um, and then when I got to meet you in person via Jess, um, it was quite a little humble honour, actually, to spend a bit of time chewing your ear off at the, the Perth finish line. So this would be great, I think, for people to get to know you a bit better, because they see you, let's say, with a tracksuit on and um, in your roles, but, you know, how you got into the sport. So without any delay, do you want to share a bit of your day one background, how you found athletics or how it found you yeah look i think i started off um like most people you know most people get into coaching they start off as athletes themselves and um you know i I had a fairly humble story when it comes to being an athlete i i look back on it with really fond memories and um and recognize the passion i had for what i was doing but i also recognize um well i recognize now probably the limitations of my own ability to to really, I guess, progress to the heights of what I wanted to be involved in. I, I was one of those kids who was just enthralled when the Olympics was on. And, um, you know, I, I, I watch I watch those movies like um, Eddie the Eagle and anyone who's watched that and sees this kid who's just obsessed with the Olympics. It's kind of me growing up and I reckon my parents would watch that and always have a tear in their eye. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what Adam was like, you know. Um, and... Look, I mean, I, I look back at that and just go, I just enjoyed the the romance of sport. I enjoyed um, the history of the Olympics and the purity of sport. Uh, and, and that's probably what dragged me into being a, a runner and, and not getting involved so much in things like soccer, which was my other sport that I played when I was younger. Um, I would probably say I was a very shy kid growing up. And so what in, what basically happened is you know, I went to a school uh, when I was in year four, a school called St. Michael's College, uh-huh. which played a fairly big role in, in my story. And I'll, I'll share that a little bit more. Um, and, you know, basically had a PE teacher there who, who you know, lo- loved athletics, loved high jumps specifically, a guy called Michael Fry. Um, and he would start us off at the start of the year, 300 metre time trial, 1.6 kilometre time trial. I remember 300, just very first race I've ever run in my whole life um, against all the other kids in and was leading the whole way, but the kid got me on, on the line and I came second. I was like, oh, geez, I, I didn't know I was good at this stuff. <laughs> and then the 1.6 kilometre run sort of took off and um, and was, was coming around the last 200 metres, just waiting for the same kid to pass me again and never did. And it's probably the first thing I, I probably truly ever won. And it was a 1.6 kilometre time trial in my class in year four. And and I don't know, I think as a young kid, when, when there's nothing you've really done to, to feel like you excel in anything, uh, you sort of gravitate towards that and you build your confidence off of that. And that's, that's what happened for me. Um, and just through primary school, you know, was, was known as this skinny kid who, who, who did a ride at running. And my, 
my teacher, you know, used to call me Deke and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I had a lot of really encouraging people. And then I reckon it was year five or year six, I had a, um, a P, well, my actual classroom teacher who, um, who, who I wouldn't say was in the greatest of health or, uh, or was the slimmest bloke. I'd say, uh, you know, there was a different poll to that discussion. Um, and one year he, he trained up to run the City Bay Fun Run here in Adelaide, a 12-kilometre fun run. And he said, Adam, do you want to do it with me? And we used to do training at lunchtimes around the school and around the Oval. So I said, yeah, sure. Um, and I jumped in with him and I did my very first road race at 12K when I was 12, um, which, which is rather early, but it was just, you know, just so naive and, and the nature of the sport, just I, I got sucked into it. And, you know, going forward, I, I actually ended up working with both those teachers. So I finished off my schooling in um, St. Michael's. I was a football umpire. Uh, with the SNFL here for my my latter years of high school but didn't really enjoy that side of things but loved the running so you know probably when I left school I left umpiring at the same time and um, just truly got into my running off of that started to progress I got down about 14 and a half minutes of 5k and I never got any faster than that went over to college um, in in America I went to the University of Memphis um, you know not known as the greatest college um, there and that's no disrespect to them they've got a really good program and throws and things but for distance running at the time uh i was one of the top guys on the team and so um with a 14 and a half minute 5k so just to give it some perspective but i got a great experience and i came home from that um recognizing it doesn't just mean you go overseas and you become a great runner i didn't really improve much over there just enjoyed the experience came back kept running um but yeah a couple of years later i had moved to ballarat um, to have Rod Griffin coach me. Collis Birmingham was one of my training partners at the time and it's one of the key reasons for going over there. So Collis is a really young developing athlete, about 19 or 20 at the time. Spent a year in Ballarat, but towards the second half of that year, I developed an Achilles injury. Um, was pretty keen to get back to Adelaide and so I, I moved back to Adelaide after that year and um, but dealt with an Achilles problem for the rest of my running, basically. And it was a, probably about... Um, uh, 18 months later after moving back from Ballarat to Adelaide I had to go in for Achilles surgery and that's kind of where my coaching um, started um, I was a full-time teacher working back at St Michael's College uh, with the two teachers the PE teacher and my year five six teacher who who encouraged me into the sport and and I worked with them for for the next 10 years um, but as a coach I, um, I I jumped into it basically at the time of my Achilles surgery uh, I, I kind of was a bit confused as to what to do and I, I didn't know how that was really going to play out. I don't know that the doctors gave me huge confidence I was going to be right on the end of it and I, I probably should have been. But I, I remember just my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's I've now married, my wife, Kate, um, she was having dinner with her group and one of the guys who was dating one of her training partners sitting there and he wasn't a bad runner himself, a guy called Toby Medlin and we just started chatting and and you know, he was sort of looking for a few things in his, in his running. I said, well, how about I coach you? I didn't really plan on asking that. It just sort of happened. And he said, yeah, sure. And so I was like, oh, crap, all right, I'm coaching this guy now. So I went home and I wrote three months of training for him that night and uh, thought it was that simple, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't simple. It, it wasn't easy. It was, it was a very confronting environment to come into. And um, I, I would say I'd, I enjoyed working with the athletes, but I didn't enjoy getting involved in coaching. And it's something I've, I've truly tried to 
um, addressed through through the roles that I've played um, uh, within you know Athletics Australia and for Athletics SA over the years, knowing how I didn't feel overly encouraged by people in my local environment. Um, and, and I remember, you know, after a couple of years going, well, why the hell am I doing this? So I just, you know, I'm getting anxious about uh, the response people are giving me. And, you know, I'll be completely honest and say, I, I probably caused some of that myself. You know, I wasn't mature. I was 26 years of age, taking on a fairly significant responsibility. And, and, and what I try to impart on people now is when you, you take on coaching, you take on a leadership role within the community and you've got to respect that. I wasn't old enough, nor was I mature enough, when, nor was I probably psychologically and emotionally developed enough to be able to recognise that at the time. And you do what most people do at that age. You, you, you think, you, think you, you can take on the whole world and you, you feel like you can, um, you're in control of everything and you're not in control of much at all. And, and it takes a while for you to realise that you can't, you know, I certainly take this approach now, I can't make an athlete do anything. And I don't necessarily intend to make them do anything. I offer guidance, I offer support, and it's their choice. It's their choice whether they follow that, whether they want to work with me or whether they don't, um, or whether they want to challenge my, my ideas, whether they want to challenge my approach. And I'm completely comfortable with all of that and I expect it. Um, and so when we talk about that entry into coaching, I don't know that I'd encourage young people to get into coaching that quickly until they respect and acknowledge the responsibility that comes along with it. And I got thrust into a position of responsibility really early and I sensed it um, when, and, and you know, I'm just jumping straight ahead here to a lot of things, but um, when you consider that after one year, um, you know, I, I, I took on coaching my, my partner's group at the time and she was coached by a guy called Roger Pedrick and Roger just, he'd been coaching for, for eons and he had just had enough. And, um, you know, their squad had, had guys like Michael Roger in it and Michael had just moved over to, um, to be part of the AIS. So he had just left the group. And I think Roger just got to the point where the motivation to keep going wasn't really there. And so he took on a role with lacrosse. And it was a it was a bit of a shock to everyone, and that that group was looking for coaches and uh, and who would take on their group and and I I was coaching Toby at the time, just the one athlete, and again a young immature coach thought he knew everything. Said to you know my wife was talking about um, the coaches that they were thinking about, and I I knew I'd get frustrated with it because it it was coaches who I I probably should have given more respect to at the time, but, but probably didn't in those moments. And um, said, look, why don't, why don't I, you see if the girls want me to coach them? And she took that out to them. They said, yeah, great. And I was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> now I've got a squad, a whole squad, um, plus Toby. So Toby came into that. And, um, and Jess wasn't there at the time when all this happened. She was overseas with her boyfriend at the time. And she came back and the squad had a new coach and, Everything was different and, and um, she, she wasn't sure what, what to do. Um, but I know now that when she was coming back from her, her overseas trip, her thoughts were, okay, I'm going to give this running a full shot. I'm going to see if I love it and I'm going to go with it. She was still playing a lot of netball at the time. Um, and within, you know, like as soon as she rocked up, it was a very different environment for her, obviously. And within 12 months, I said, look, you've actually got a bit of talent here. I think you've got to consider giving up netball. Um, and she was pointing out local athletes and she 
said, oh, geez, one day I'd like to be as good as them. I said, oh, you can be better than them. And she didn't really believe me. And I don't know if she had that trust in me to make those calls at that stage. And, and again, I think, I think let's, let's, let's not rec- fail to recognise a young coach with a, with a bit of arrogance to, to yeah. match it and, and a bit of immaturity to go along with it. Um, so, you know, we just got stuck into it and started working. Um, and again, not huge responsibility at that stage, but as she started to progress, as she started to, you know, breach into a, a top 10 at nationals position, and as we had more runners winning state championships and things like that, it actually probably got more uncomfortable for me as a coach because um, people now started saying, oh, you know, it took me a bit more seriously and thought this guy's a potential threat to athletes wanting to go there and all those sort of things. No, I wasn't interested in any of that. I, I wasn't interested in still never to this day have I ever recruited one athlete and um, I really comfortably say that I've never recruited an athlete. Um, it goes against my sort of agenda. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a hard place to be and it was a hard place to sort of find myself. And again, like I said, within a couple of years, I was just questioning, should I actually be doing this? Because it's causing me far more headaches and enjoyment. Um, but you can never quite get away from how much you sort of value and respect the athlete's faith in you, the athletes want to work with you. And that just, if you can't draw motivation to, to suck it up and get on with it from that, then, then you're never really going to, because there's not the kudos that some people think comes in the landscape of sport uh, with being an athletics coach. And you shouldn't be looking for that anyway. It shouldn't be why you're doing it. And to, to form those bonds and those relationships with the athletes is just, is the most rewarding thing you can you can ever have and be a part of, um, and like I said, that's probably my key motivator. So, yeah, uh, it was very easy to get sucked in and hooked on coaching from that perspective. And yeah, like I said, the responsibility definitely came when I saw someone who uh, I think the first time I really noticed it was when we rocked up at City Surf with Jess in a winnable position, and I think. Most people recognise City Surf. It's a very iconic event. And I remember the night before the race, I could not sleep. Uh, actually, the day before the race, I was a nervous wreck. It was ridiculous how nervous I was. I looked back and just go, why don't they just put me in the cupboard and say, just stay away, Adam. Like, I was ridiculously nervous because I thought, it's a big thing for South Australia. Like We haven't had any athletes at this level for such a long time. And I've got someone here on coaching who, who can win it tomorrow and I was just like don't stuff it up Adam you know and I put so much pressure on myself and and I I you know I honestly look back on that and cringe a little bit because uh, you know you, you grow and adapt to the environment but back then I just didn't handle it well at all um and to, I guess the, the story that goes along with that race is you know super nervous coach the day before an athlete who at three o'clock in the morning decided to get up and go to the toilet and smack her knee into a um into a coffee table um, and uh, it was it was funny we sat at my mum's place and um, Jess and uh, another athlete were were on an air mattress um, in the lounge room my wife and I were on an air mattress in the same lounge room and then we all got woken up because Jess has just smacked this coffee table so hard with her knee and I'm like oh crap <laughs> I told you I put pressure on myself don't stuff this up Adam and I'm like first response go grab a bag of peas from the freezer chuck this on your knee Jess and just go back to sleep and uh, she did and then she wakes up in the morning and barely straighten her knee and I'm like oh uh, no. okay 
Um, and she goes, no, it's all good. It's all good. And, and what I learned in that moment is it's not about me. It's not yeah. about, uh, you know, like it, it's the athlete who, who makes a difference here, not the coach. And, uh, and I was running that day as well. And um, so Jess and I, we, we said, all right, we'll go warm up. It's no good. You can come back here. If it's good, you can get on the start line. She got on the start line and won. Um, and, you know, what, what a moment as a young coach to see an athlete and just be so proud of them for what they managed there. And, you know, that just started a massive flow and effect of making Australian teams and things. And that's when I got really scary as a coach. So, yeah. The, I'll, I'll um, pause for a second. <laughs> the the part that I really and I suppose catches with me is the emotional intelligence side. You know, I even probably gets the same with you where you have training partners and they're not as invested, or you know they'll sit there and go, oh, "I can't be bothered today," or you've helped them with the program and they go, oh, "It was raining, couldn't be bothered." That type. Of, you. Were, it sounds like you were the type of coach early days that it really knocked you about and you know you felt you were putting in 150 percent so the athlete should be putting in 190 whereas now you've almost realized that well you write the program it's up to them to go do it like you can't literally turn up to their house put shoes on for them kick them out of the house and as long as you're doing your job and motivating as much as you can it's down to the athlete to be the athlete yeah, I oh, look 100%. I lost many athletes in the early days because, you know, as I said, I wasn't the most talented guy, but I certainly tried to approach it with the highest level of professionalism I could. And my expectation and thought was everyone wants to go to the Olympics. And so I expected them all to adapt that mentality. And it's, it's such a wrong approach. Like, you, 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 you know, you quickly learn, no, I've, I've actually got to understand what they want out of the sport. So I don't support them to do that. And some, yes, they'll say that. Some, that they're not really interested in that. Um, and look, it, it definitely probably the, the direction things took for me from there show that my style and approach probably suited um, towards that high performance development, um, you know, style of athlete. So that's just naturally the way things went. And I, and I stopped making excuses for that and just said, well, that's, that's where my attributes are. That's the type of coach I am. I'm, I'm a performance coach. I'm, uh, I'm not a recreational running coach as such. Um, you know, I'm not just here for your participation. Um, it's not that I didn't value that. It's just I just felt that um, the, the sort of skills that I had um, probably lent itself better to, to those athletes wanting to, wanting to really focus on performance. So that's just generally the, the style of athlete that – I guess I attracted and, and was attracted to working with. Um, but yeah, I, I did find that really quite hard in the early days to adapt my approach to suit the needs of the athletes and try to dictate the environment. And I definitely have changed, you know, a lot since then. And I, and I hope I have. Um, I believe I have because I, I, it's not the style of coach that I respect or want to be like, you know. Um, I have a lot of respect for my athletes um i have a lot of respect for their intelligence for their ability to identify what's right for them um and you know when we talk about the motivation side of things i don't actually even believe i'm a motivator i, I believe i'm someone who puts structures in place to allow them to seek their own uh, or identify their own motivations for doing what they're doing um you know uh, i think that's probably where where my approach sort of lends itself to um, because it's too hard to create superficial motivation in an athlete 
the the task is too too big it's it requires too much commitment from the athlete for it to be something that i plug in and they go with it has to be something that they find within themselves that means something to them they need to be attached to that goal and to to that um and that'll that'll draw out a commitment and if i'm trying to pull that out of them and it's not there then that's really not going to last too long so uh, i find if i have to continually motivate athletes there's probably a limited lifespan to that athlete's um, progression. And uh, when the going gets tough, they're probably not the style that are going to get going. Um, so, yeah, I kind of view that in a very different way. And, and like I say, I'm, I'm more a facilitator of an environment for, for the athletes to, to progress. Um, you know, it's, it's why we've sort of structured things in a team-like environment uh-huh. um, because, you know, I take more responsibility for the environment than I take purely for that athlete. The athlete's got levels of accountability to what they need to do. I'm accountable to my roles. And, um, and together, if, if we both respect and take on board that level of accountability, then, then the performance will start to happen. So, you know, and again, early days coaching used to do a lot. Now, I recognise that that is a lot of what the athletes can do. And it's funny because I've, I, I've brought up teaching at St. Michael's College and it's a, it's a Lasallian school. And, you know, um, and every year we do this education around um, the patron saint of teaching, De La Salle. And there was one bit that stuck with me and I took, went over into my, into my coaching is never do something for students that they can do for themselves because there's learning in all of that. And I do the same with athletes. Never do something for an athlete that they can do themselves. Because there's a level of accountability and commitment associated to that that they need to buy into. And if I have to do things for them that they can do themselves, well, you know, what, what really is happening here? You know, um, there, there's certain elements that they need to own and, and go with. And, and I think that's that healthy respect that we have between ourselves as coach and athlete. Um, I'm not there to be kicked, used and abused. I'm there to play a role, that role as the coach. Um, they are there to play a role within the group, which is the athlete that comes with a level of responsibility and they need to be accountable to it. So if we go back and review performance, as long as I can tick all my boxes, that's my job as I've done that as well as I can. If the athlete goes and ticks all their boxes too, again, we've got a fairly high, high, high chance of success there. So it's not all on me. It's not all on them. We have to play our own roles um, and we have to acutely understand what that is. So when I look at my coaching the majority of my coaching doesn't happen on the side of the track. Yeah. Um, the athletes have stopwatches. They can time themselves. Me timing them isn't the end of the world. It's not an overly technical event. So I don't need to watch every foot strike they take or, or watch their arm swings effective all the time. You know, I can give that general feedback and I go out there to, to do so. But my general uh, purpose of being out at training is to read the athlete, understand them, see how they're going, um, make adjustments to suit. I recognise that running is more than just putting one foot in front of the other, having the energy to do so. You know, training the energy systems. There's a psychology associated with it. There's the there's the emotional um, health. You know, that needs to be factored in as well. So, you know, I can see athletes some days rock up. I watch their body language. I go, geez, this person's not in a great mood. That could be from a variety of factors. It can be from stressful day at work. It could be that they're fatigued. It could be the fact that they're struggling to believe they're capable of doing what they need to do. There's an inordinate things that, that could be happening there and, and, you know, being a conduit towards helping them 
work that out and having that discussion, asking the right questions is what's truly allowing me to support them. Likewise, I think probably some of my best coaching happens in a coffee shop. When we're sitting down, identifying what needs to be done, how we're going to go about it, what are the actions we're going to take, and what are the key things that we need to focus on. And uh, that's done one-on-one -on -one in a coffee shop, you know, uh, and they know I love drinking coffee, so it's a good part of the job. Um, but it's not all it's not all about just watching the technique or design the training program. They're, they're just, they're just the non-negotiables that must take place. And they're important to get right. But then, you know, you could you could get that right. But if you don't get these other things right, it's not really going to do a hell of a lot. And it seems like you've really, maybe this might have changed as well over the years, that you've identified your wheelhouse and gone, I am the expert in this domain. So, you know, if an athlete needs advice on their gait, I'll send them to somebody who's an expert. In it. Whereas, let's say a lot in the rec running world at the moment, there's a lot of possibly a bit of a Dunning-Kruger approach, you know. Mm. Um, do you find that, has that changed over the years or am I kind of just um, grasping no, that? 100%, but I mean, it comes down to a, uh, uh, what you have available to you, really, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, I was, the, I was the whole toolkit back in the day because um, I didn't have the, um, the resources on hand to do anything about that. Um, and I remember the moment when, um, when Jess finally got uh, a scholarship at SASE um, at the Institute of Sport here in Adelaide. And, and I went from being the person who guided her on her nutrition, on her strength program. You know, she was a physio, so she always had really good care in that space. But I'd still be trying to identify all of those things as well. And you're just trying to be everything. And the, the reality is, if you're trying to be everything, they are limited to your experience and knowledge in those areas. So it was uncomfortable to bring other people in to take over those roles. But I also recognized very quickly, hey, nutrition, there's a person here who's got a four-year degree. He's learned specifically in this area and in multiple years and years of experience working with athletes. How can I improve upon that advice given? Strength and conditioning. Yeah, I've got my, my level one, um, but I, I don't want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I mean, I look at that stuff and it's still you know, it looks confusing to me at times, you know, it's not my, it's not my area of confidence. So I'll get someone in to do that. It's much better than me doing it myself. So I, don't, I never try to be something I'm not. Um, and I never try to act like I've got knowledge that I don't. Um, I, I think it's even quite healthy to say that. Like, hey, look, I'm not actually really sure about that. Let me, going, let me go and look into it or let me go and speak to someone who does know more about that and let me get back to you. The moment you try to, you know, fluff it along and act like you know something that you don't. The moment the athletes find out you don't actually know what the hell you're talking about, that's when they start losing faith in you because you have a responsibility to them and their career. They have one career as an athlete. You've got to respect that and get that right. And if you don't have the ability to do that, even if you don't have the ability or experience to coach someone to the level they're going to, you've got to respect that athlete to say, hey, I don't necessarily have the experience. So if I can't, leverage off of someone else maybe i need to send you to someone else to 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 you know be imparted with their wisdom and their experience and for them to be able to better support you than i can you know um doesn't mean you can't still be friends doesn't mean you can't still be involved in a mentoring capacity and the likes and even when i've had athletes come to me from other coaches i've encouraged them to maintain connection with those coaches because that person could still play a key role in being a mentor and and the like so 
you know, when you when you become a coach, I think you've got to be a bit more relaxed about that engagement um, and bring in the best people to work with the athletes. You owe it to them to do that. But like I said, before experiencing that, um, before knowing how to interact with that team type environment around the athletes, it was inco- uncomfortable, something that needed to be faced. And when I got there and saw the results we were getting and the confidence the athlete had in the process, how can you deny that, that that's the right approach? And I, you know, I also <laughs> still laugh about it. I remember once just sitting in the coffee shop with the squad and I got a number of doctors, people studying law, you know, physiotherapists, they're comparing their, their tertiary entrance rank um, out of school. And I'm like, geez, I'm probably about the dumbest guy at the table here. <laughs> so how, how can I, how can I not encourage them to be involved in that process? How can I, encourage them not you know how, how can I sit there and not encourage them to read articles and things and I say go ahead and read them and some coaches go oh yeah then form these funny ideas and all the rest of them. I say great bring them to them. let's have a discussion let's filter out the crap let's identify the things that might work and let's find a way that we can apply it to what's currently going on here um, because the reality is if you don't encourage that again the athlete's going am I truly doing what I should be doing are they going to continue to uh, you know, question your approach and those sort of things. And at the end of the day, the coach does not line up in the start line. The athlete does. And if the athlete lines up in the start line, what are they taking with them? They're taking with them the confidence and the belief in their approach. Now, if they've got questions, question marks hanging over that approach, then how are they going to have the confidence and the belief to go out there and perform at the highest level? So if you bring their ideas into it, if you show them some respect by listening to them and taking that on board, then you've got an athlete who lines up with a great deal more confidence in the approach. Now, maybe that changes your approach. What's a big deal about that? Why are we so precious about an athlete having input on, on their training? And, and, uh, and it, you know, possibly they've worked out something that you haven't yet. You know, we've all got blind spots. I don't care how experienced you are. We've all got blind spots. Sometimes the athletes can see something that you can't. And I, and I often, the, the phrase I often go with is the most valuable resource a coach can have is the athlete. So listen to them. You will never learn as much in a book or watching a video or listening to a podcast that you will learn from listening to your athlete. So, you know, I, I strongly encourage people to, to have a relationship with their athlete that encourages that. And don't, be, don't feel uncomfortable about being questioned. I mean, that, that's your opportunity to show you actually do know what you're talking about and develop a more... Um, authentic and genuine relationship with your athlete around their training and i think you know winding way back where a few things that stood out like you said you know never approach an athlete to try and poach them um to me automatically it goes to too nice which you know i i've heard where people say oh why don't you go and do this do that and i think you've probably got a similar mentality of you know if that person wants to approach me great and i'll prove myself by the results that are happening and you'd want to form a foundation that people want to join you. Um, and it's either in your, in your being or not to be a salesperson, you know, you either are a person who can go out there, stand on the rooftops and say, I'm Adam, I'm great. Come to me. But am I right in saying you're going, okay, if you want to knock on my door, I'll welcome you in. But I didn't get into this game to go chase people, make money and shout from the rooftops. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and it's funny because I, I know in confidence I've, I've never approached an athlete. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's inevitable 
I've been accused of doing it many times. I was sitting there going, scratching my head, going, I've never, never <laughs> spoken to that person before. You know, how, how did I, how did I do that? Did I, did I send them smoke signals? But I, I definitely hadn't spoken to that person. Um, no, look, absolutely. I mean, it's a two-way street, isn't it? You know, and I've even had athletes that have come to me, and my very first question is, well, why are you leaving the coach you're currently with? And they'll, they might tell me the reasons, and I said, okay, have you actually spoken to them about that? Because I say this to my athletes, you know, in fairness, if there's something I'm doing that you don't like or there's something you want to improve, give me the opportunity by sharing that with me and allowing me to respond before you just pack your bags and leave, uh-huh. you know, because it's, it, again, that it's rather hard to accept. Um, and so when coaches have athletes leave with a shock, I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I don't know that I really want to work with that athlete either. Why do I want to work with an athlete who's got the capabilities of doing that? They obviously haven't got a high level of communication or, you know, the flip side is that the coach is not allowing the environment to be comfortable enough for that athlete to have those discussions with them. So that's on both of them. Um, But I still feel that, you know, even when I do sit down and an athlete asks me to coach them, I start asking them questions to work out whether I actually want to work with them. And I haven't always said yes to athletes for that reason. I go, I don't think I'm going to be the right person or I don't think they're going to fit into the squad or, you know, I don't say this rudely, I'm not sure my time investing this person is the right way of spending my time. Um, And so, you know, that's all part of it. So, you know, and I think that's that's somewhere where coaches need to respect themselves too, you know. Athletes come to the coach asking them for their support. If you go asking that athlete to support them, then there's a a level of of, um, how does that, how does that relationship end up going? Are you working for them? Are they working for you? I believe you work in partnership. You've got to work together. And if you're not prepared to work together, it's never going to work. So um, if one person views that the other person's working for them, I just don't think that really, that, that's not an easy situation. Now, you know, that gets really complicated when you have things like, you know, coaching fees and the likes. Um, but I think, you know, there's a level of accountability that, that sort of is associated with that style of things as well. Um, and, I've, and I've questioned that too. You know, I, I think, um, you know, if we want to see coaching become a professional-natured uh, role, then we need to recognise it as such. Um, and, but we also need to respect, you know, what athletes can do and can afford and we can't be uh, trying to, uh, you know, get, get greedy with those sorts of things. But I, I do feel that if I don't feel like, that person's jumping into work we're working together then that's not going to work and sometimes you know i say to say to athletes go and speak to a number of coaches when you're in the point of okay i don't have a coach we're going to speak to a few and and treat it like a job interview because it's important that you choose the right person um you, you don't have to select the right person and even when an athlete has called me up on the phone and said hey um i'd like you to coach me i say okay well maybe first find out what i have to offer Mm. and then and i say okay just because we've had this phone call doesn't mean that you still need to take me on i want you to go away think about it and think about if what i've said is the right thing for you and then give me a call back within a week or so and tell me is this going to be the right situation for you um because i don't like people just thinking the grass is greener um i i don't know that i necessarily offer a level of training that's wildly different to anyone else that has any magical secrets or anything like that i I feel like i apply a fairly traditional model of training um 
that many other coaches do also. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like what I offer outside of that training program is what I want an athlete to be attracted to working with. Um, and, and going back to the early days of my coaching, when we talk about the tough nature of it and the emotional sort of toll it took on me, it was largely because I didn't understand this about the coach-athlete relationship. You know, I, I you know, got to remember I was 26. Um, I had athletes who were, who were of similar age and they became a friendship group. They were friends with my, my, my wife and my partner at the time. So it's that social circle. And I, oh, geez, it was so hard because I thought, hey, uh, they've come to me as a coach. Um, but yet I, I, I feel offended if they don't invite me out for dinner or for a drink <laughs> or something like that. And you're sitting there going, this is so silly. This is not the way it's supposed to work. But it's just, again, that level of immaturity. I, I really prefer now being 40, um, having athletes in the early 20s and I don't really want to listen to the same music as them <laughs> they speak a foreign language to me these days and and I like that and and I often say to um, and it's another thing I learned from my teaching where the principal said hey the uh, the students did not come to school to have a 40 year old best friend they came to have a teacher yeah. and I look at the same way as um, as uh, you know as a coach now those athletes came to me because they wanted me to help them become better runners not because they thought I was a good bloke and want to sit down and have a beer with me at the end of the day you know uh, if we form a good relationship and we have a friendship post running that's fantastic I look forward to those relationships with my athletes but first and foremost they've come to me asking me to help them to run faster and that's that's a priority you know so I'm not looking for them to to call me up to go out and have a beer and that's not my um, I don't feel like I need to fit in with them in their age group and those sort of things I'm completely comfortable half the time I say hey just just go I'll give you some space so that you don't have to feel the pressure of having coach hanging over your shoulder so you know it's just a difference in in the nature of maturity I think you mentioned and one of the things that has been I think hearing your story and has always been quite admirable is you've always pulled the curtain down and no fear of having mentors um, I know that when you first started coaching Jess I think you mentioned that you kind of said, right, well, I'm going to reach out to experts and I'm going to really chew their ear off. And none of the things, Steve Monaghetti, Chris Wardlaw, those type of names um, were people that you weren't scared to reach out to. Um, whereas I look at anybody now kind of gets a bit cagey showing their weakness, you know, and you'd look at modern society, people going out and saying, oh, I don't know everything. Even in the workplace, you'd never get that because you'd almost get that mirror shone on them going, hang on, you know, you're supposed to be in this role, but you've never, you've owned that saying that you don't know everything and you always ask and ask. Um, was that something that, where did that come from? Was that getting into coaching? You said that you do that or as a student, you were like that as a child, it must've stemmed from somewhere. I uh, look, I did. Yeah, definitely. I, I had it reflected to me uh, in my adult years, that as a kid, my, my mum would say, oh, the teachers always say, Adam, just ask a number of questions. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? You know, is this, am I doing this right? And so there's definitely probably a, a nature of that within me. Um, I'm certainly not a perfectionist, um, but I do take pride in doing things as well as I possibly can. And, uh, and I don't seek the reinforcement as much as I did in the past. Um, you know, that comes with a bit of confidence, experience and maturity. Um, but certainly in those early days, as I said, it was recognizing the responsibility I had 
Um, now, I was very fortunate. Um, the last coach that I had was, was Sean Crichton. And so I started coaching at the same time. Sean was still coaching me. And so it was a very easy relationship to ask him questions. And Sean was a very busy guy at the time too. He, had, he was working for Athletics Australia to begin with. And then he uh, moved on to start his own law firm. And so you can imagine the guy wasn't flushed with a lot of time to spend. And, um, and there were three of us training in, in Adelaide together. Um, a guy called Tyson Popplestone and, uh, and a good friend of mine, Daniel Matner, who now lives in America. And the three of us formed a real partnership. But there'd be times that I just couldn't get on the shore and to find out what the session was. And I kind of had to fill in the blanks. And then I'd say, this is what we ended up doing. He's like, oh, that's great. It's exactly what I would have given you anyway. So I had a good read and understanding of what he wanted from us with our training. So that worked really well. And just, you know, I was spoiled for the opportunity to have a guy as experienced as him as an athlete to, to guide me through those latter years of my, of my training, but also those early years of my my coaching so um it was very easy to pick up the phone and say hey sean i wouldn't mind going through this with you but as i started to recognize the talent and and i'll, I'll pull out jess as the example because it was the, the key to to that early stage of my coaching development and recognized that hey i, I can't stuff this up this, this this girl can go to the olympics and i certainly and, and i even said it to her at the time i do not want my lack of experience or knowledge to limit what your potential is. And so I said, you can rely on me to make sure if I don't have the answers, I'll look to people to help me find the answers. Um, I had a really good mentor who was my very first athlete, coach guy called Tony Checker, who hadn't coached me since I was 16, but we stayed in regular contact from the time I was 16, um, just as a mentor in my life. And, and he was fantastic and it probably really helped me with my coaching approach because I loved the way he approached things. So, you know, there's a lot to learn from him. Um, and then, you know, again, like when you have athletes like Jess, people like Chris Wardlaw were taking an interest and they were open to helping me. And I, and it was very much facilitated and assisted by Tim O'Shaughnessy, who was at Athletics Australia at the time in the lead distance role. Um, and he recognised me as a young coach, starting to have a few athletes who were who were working out well. It helped that my first athlete, Toby Medlin, who I was still coaching. Uh, was a development officer at Athletes Australia at the time, so he had contacts with people. Um, and we went up to Falls Creek and I said, hey, Tim, um, I'd love to be able to, um, to to meet with some of the coaches. And he's like, oh, yeah, who, who would you like to meet with? I said, well, I'd love to meet with, um, and I'd already been speaking to Chris Wardlaw. Um, I, I didn't know Steve Monaghetti too well at that time, although I'd been to Ballarat. So um, I sort of ran with him a bit in Ballarat and got to know him a little bit through that time. Um, so I could pick up the phone if I needed with him. Um, but I said, I'd, I'd like to chat with Nick Badeau. I'd love to chat with um, Richard Huggins and Ian Hatfield. And I'd like to chat with, um, with Ken Green. And he organised me to sit down and have a coffee with all these guys individually and talk training. And, and some of those conversations were, were heavily influential over what I do now. Um, and Nick Badeau and I still <laughs> look back and talk about that conversation we had back then. Um, but there's, you know, like, to me, what have I got to lose? You know, like, what have I got to lose? I've got people I can learn from. Um, you know, I, again, you just restrict yourself if you don't look to these people. I mean, these were people I respected. You know, they were giants in the in the coaching world. And, um, and I, you know, I remember when I was, um, when I was being coached by Rod Griffin, 
probably an early sign I was going to be a coach. And, and Rod was another one I, I spoke to quite regularly. You know, we'd, we'd go out and like I said, Cole Spurling was one of my training partners. Then we had a few other local guys in Ballarat there, um, Rod's son, Matt, and another guy, Sam Ellis. And, and we would go and um, have dinner with people. But I'd always find myself gravitating towards the, the end where, where Rod was with guys like Bruce Scriven and the types and sitting there wanting to talk with them as opposed to hanging out with the athletes. So I think it was just the nature of that. So I, I really enjoyed talking about coaching type stuff. Um, and I was a bit of a geek with that stuff. So it was really easy to get engaged with it. And, and you know, the, what I found, you know, I said I found it really difficult here locally in, in South Australia to sort of have those conversations. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, there's a potential that it was just, okay, new kid on the block. You know, what's he going to do? I, you know, um, people competing as coaches and I, I hate that idea of coaches competing we're not competing we, we shouldn't be competing we don't get on the start line and race we stand in the background for a reason you know we're not the competition we just assist people to compete and my view is every coach is busting their gut trying to help their athletes be the best athletes they can be uh, my my respect for all those coaches is, is massively high because I know what it takes and I know how hard it is I know how hard it is to get it right and so I have an enormous amount of respect for every coach. And I don't like to hear people speak negatively about any coach for the, those exact reasons, you know, whether you agree with their approach or not. Respect the fact that they're having a crap and they could just as easily sit home and watch TV rather than get out and spend their time coaching. Um, so I think coaches got to get rid of this idea of competing against one another, who's a top dog coach. That's all a bunch of crap to me. Um, and, uh, you know, view it more as, do the best you can for your athletes, respect that everyone's doing that. And for me to do the best for the athletes I worked with, I needed to bring experience into what I was doing because I had none. I had none, you know, and and not only that, I've, I've already expressed how I was pretty overwhelmed by it. So I was pretty uncomfortable. And the way I feel uncomfortable was by surrounding myself with experienced people uh, who knew what they were doing and who I started to learn from or reinforce my approach. Like I, I remember riding the very first program I did for Jess's marathon when we decided to have a crack. And I, you know, again, naively now, cause I wouldn't do it now, but I wrote three months of training and said, this is your marathon prep. Sent it off to Sean Crichton. Again, guy I knew quite well was my coach. Said, um, can you give me some feedback on it? He said, yep, I'll have a read through it and then we'll, we'll have a chat. Um, I was up at Falls Creek at the time. So I said to, Chris Wardlaw, do you mind sitting down going through this program with me? You know, he's a godfather of marathon running, so who better to learn from? Sat down with my iPad, had all my spreadsheets and all the rest of it, and he's like, oh, this is, this is a bit too complex for me. And he was coaching Craig Mottram at the time, and Craig Mottram walked over, and he goes, what are you guys doing? He goes, oh, I'm just looking through Adam's program. He's like, you got an iPad? He goes, geez, Rab just pulls out a receipt from his pocket and writes out mind training for the week. So I, I recognised then that, you know, I put a lot of thought into this, but I was potentially overdoing it as well. And I learned why that approach was, you know, more focused on weeks rather than this massive planning module. And, and Rab said to me, he said, all right, look, I don't really worry about your sessions. Just tell me what your general structure is. What are you doing week to week? And I went through that with him. He goes, yep, that sounds good. All right, give us a couple of your sessions. What are they? And he goes, yep, they all sound fine. Yeah, great. And then I went that afternoon after speaking to Rab and Sean called me and he laughs about this because he doesn't remember doing it, but I remember it. I remember him doing it. He goes, all right, I've got a list of 10 things. And I'm like, yeah, this guy's a lawyer. He's probably got his legal pad out. <laughs> and he's ticking these things off. And he goes, and I'm going to challenge you with all these things. And 
And if you can answer me, um, go for it. And if you can't, then we'll discuss some of the things that you could do to change it. And so he went through it and I think he had a list of about 12 things and, and nine of them, yeah, he's like, yeah, no worries. And three of them, we just made a couple of small adjustments like travel time to Japan and those sort of things. And I had no idea about that stuff. I had never been to Japan or been overseas for a race. I'd, well, I'd been my college experience in one world uni cross, but that was all organized for me. I, I didn't have any oversight on those things. So here I was having to make those decisions and he assisted me greatly in going, okay, so you can go over on the Thursday, but you need to leave in the morning so that you get a full day flight, you get to Japan. And then when you go to bed at night, you're, you haven't missed any sleep. You haven't disrupted your sleep by doing it. I said, great. He goes, and if you can't get that flight, you need to go a bit earlier because it's going to disrupt the night. Sleep. And all these things, which are just gems that I would not have even thought of because I didn't have the experience. And those, those things largely... Uh, assisted Jess to have a successful debut marathon, uh, which got her through the London Marathon, uh, got her through the London Olympics. So if I didn't lean on that, the likelihood of that being successful was lessened. And again, I asked the question, what are we here as coaches? It's to give the athletes the greatest chance of success. And that's, that's my role. My responsibility is to increase the opportunity for success. And that's what I give my guidance towards. But I think what you would find is so many uh, coaches become so cagey and don't allow the vulnerability of, oh, let me show the athlete that I don't know at all. And I'm now going to other people and they think this athlete will turn around and go, see, Adam, I'm going to that person to coach me now because they know more than you. And you tend to then try and bluff your way through. And the athlete sees that more than you being vulnerable and showing you don't know at all. Yeah. And that, that's essentially what happens, you know, um, and, and I've, you know, I, I've sort of seen these, I've tried to help coaches and I've resisted it. It's okay. Um, it's, it's your choice, uh, but you're right. It's, you know, there, there's no point in being cagey with this stuff and there's no, there's no point in thinking you've got all the answers because the more you collaborate with coaches, the more you recognize you're all on a very similar page and you have very subtle differences. And so when you go on training camps up Falls Creek, everyone's running together because the majority of their training's, you know, fairly similar. There's tweaks here and there to make it specific to the athlete and their needs and the timing. And that's what you respect about it. So, you know, you can't always do the same training as everyone else. You've got to respect that side of uh, difference. But at the end of the day, there's not that much difference in what people are doing. And um, it comes down to your approach and how you work with the athlete and how you develop them and and I think a real key for me is looking at how coaches make decisions in tricky situations that makes a huge amount of difference and that comes down to a lot of experience um, and confidence and having a a really resilient approach to problem solving in those situations because inevitably you're going to have you know as, as we talked and saw Jess's prep for Perth Marathon was less than ideal but you know, she and I worked really well together and she was phenomenal in the way that she sort of worked with me over those in that prep. Um, I couldn't have asked for anything more from her and the trust we gave each other to, to make that marathon work. Now, I can think of many ways where we could have made wrong decisions that that was going to blow up in our face. And, you know, I'll, I'll openly admit, you know, still a couple of weeks out, I was like, she's, I don't know if we're making the right decision. And then those final two weeks, reinforced it was an okay decision and then the the days leading in the conversation the confidence she was showing reinforced that yeah we were we were setting her up to 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 be successful that day but um it was just the 
the minute nature of that preparation meant that it was going to be coming into focus really late. Um, but we could have easily re-injured her in that period because she was coming off an injury uh, only less than two months prior. So, you know, that that's where I really respect when coaches are under pressure with difficult circumstance situations um, to make good decisions to work with the athletes to to buy into that and to, to respect the, the approach they take. Well, I think you're not scared to fall back on the fundamentals where I think so many, let's say modern coaches now, it's about the sale of it and how can we make this fancy and on social media shows a lot of, you know, new age fartleks and everything's got a fancy name opposed to why don't you just go spend two hours on your feet and do it over heels and get aerobically as fit as possible and then you tune it up which I think what Jess yeah. showed is she was in aerobically uh, con- amazing condition and then she turned up and, you know, everything else had to fit in around that. However, you know, if you put her out for a special workout two weeks out, you might've gone, nah, she didn't hit the, the pace, move on. But you knew aerobically she was in a position she needed to be in. Yeah, and I'm rarely ever, I don't rely on any test sessions. I don't, I don't feel they're reflective. There was the closest thing we ever did to that, and it was well publicized many years ago, was a, a three by five K session, but that had nothing to do with, I think people misinterpreted the, the intentions there, you know, like that had nothing to do with, okay, you've run this this time, so you're going to run this, this um, you're going to be able to run this time in the marathon. What it was all about was looking at what pace would stress her. You know, so it wasn't like, okay, we add this together, multiply it by five, add this much, and that's, that's going to be a marathon top. I don't, I don't really believe in any of that stuff um, because I think that fails to recognise the, ele- the, the psychological elements um, required on the day and the, the manner in which the athlete needs to execute things. So, um, you know, all we've ever, what we did with that 3 by 5 k is to give us an indication of what would be the right pace zone for Jess and, just to go through it, it was basically, you know, we'd have an idea of what we thought the marathon pace would be for Jess. And this is where we're just going, have we gotten her there or not? All right. So, you know, let's say 3.30 was a marathon pace. Uh, we'd do the first 5K at 3.35. And then we'd have a three-minute recovery. Then we'd do the second 5K at 3.30. And we'd do, then we'd do the last, um, last 5K at 3.25. And we wore a heart rate monitor for that one. And so basically we thought, okay, at the point where the heart rate just starts to really skyrocket, which is fairly typical of marathon runners when they've gone beyond what, what's going to be efficient for them, we know that's a bit of a tricky ground. So let's say get through the 335s, 330s, fine. Cool. We've got a good zone there. Get to the 325s and it starts to spike halfway through. We know that going down to 325s is dangerous territory. So her zone, zone might be, we might go, okay, anywhere between you know, 328 to 333, I'd like to give a five second pace zone um, is what you need to try and hit. Um, let's say the 325 didn't skyrocket it. We go, okay, all right, now we know your pace range is 325 to 330. So, you know, in those early stages, don't overcook that um, because you could get excited, you could get carried away with it, but could come back to bite you later. And you could just try to go, oh, maybe I'm going better, so I'll hold it. But we know from the training, we should have a good enough indication of how you're going. Um, of what pace feels comfortable for you. And a, one race to a Melbourne Marathon when Jess made her first sub um, sub 230 run, um, 
Craig Mottram was actually pacing us. She'd spent a year in Melbourne um, training with Craig's group. I was still coaching and writing a training program with Craig and Craig was overseeing it. And, and she had some really great training partners because of that. Um, he was pacing her that day as well as one of my, um, my coaches from Team Tempo, Matt Fennick. And I said, he goes, what pace do you want? And I said, I want 330s um, or just under 329, 330. You know, not much further, but, you know, that's where we need it. He goes, oh, Adam, look, whenever I've trained with her, you know, anything 330 or under, she's, she's blowing hard. And I said, I said, just Craig, trust me. Uh, you know, I, I, I can see what she's done in training. 330 or, you know, just under will be fine. And, uh, and he goes, all right, I'll trust you. And then she basically stuck at, I think, 329s. Um, but it, it was just the sort of thing to know the athlete. Like I, I've always said it with Jess, get her to a point and she'll take it to that next level in a race. Mm. And, and that's what we're talking about, the psychology that goes along with it. You know, she's just phenomenal in executing races because she has such great control over herself and knows how to, knows how to adjust, manage and guide her emotions through the race. If she's finding it a bit tough, she'll look for something to make her happy or to, to make her feel okay. And, um, and, you know, like sometimes in a, in a race, I remember that city surf where she won, you know, there's a moment there where guys started passing her and rather than go, oh, geez, I'm going backwards. Her thought process was, oh, great. Now I can try to grab one of one of these guys and help me run faster. So it's just the psychology and how she manages it. She's, she's rather impressive. And so I know in a, in a training, her training stresses are out way more than a race does. So, uh, you know, that, that's just a special element of her as an athlete. Um, but yeah, when it comes down to tests, the psychology doesn't get measured within it. So I, I don't really put much stock in it. I'm conscious of your time, mate. So I'll try and squeeze out a couple more from here. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it seems so much like race horse training as well you know because after the race everybody throws out their information and goes oh these are the things we did this is them. and people catch on to it I was having a bit of a chuckle with Jess uh, and the elliptical because yeah. everybody starts going oh Jess did this so I'm going to go do cross training and you sit there and go well you also got to understand the athlete that we're talking about here um, and she is an expert being a physio so she also knows um, her fundamentals and how her body works um, aerobically what she can do just because you're going to throw that in doesn't mean you're automatically going to get these results um, yeah. but it's always interesting to see the general public's perception once the info comes out to go so you don't need to do 180k weeks because Jess was only doing 120 but there's more <laughs> yeah and the longest run she had in the in the two months leading in was two hours 20 uh, but, you know, I, I posted about her training, um, you know, the six-week lead-in to, to that Perth Marathon. And people, I, I, you know, I probably should have, you know, clarified it when I, when I posted it. It wasn't there to go, this is a model of how you train for a marathon. It was like, sometimes you've got to get creative and it looks nothing like you've ever done before, but you've got to roll with it. You've got to understand your process and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, we were doing the cross-training from a needs basis, not because of a wants basis. Um, you know, the need was for her not to get re-injured between deciding we're going to have a go at this and, um, and, and getting to the start line and the type of injury she had, that would have been a risk. And don't get me wrong, you know, even Jess said to me when we sat down and had a meeting six weeks out, she goes, all right, let me tell you what I think I need. I said, go for it. She goes, I need at least four two and a half hour runs. And I said, no, uh, it's not going to work. I said, we don't have enough time for it. 
Um, I said, we need to, you know, she gets a lot of confidence and, and that was what she was talking to. This is what's going to help me have that confidence. And, you know, recently I've sat down to talk about her next marathon approach. And that was a specific question. What is going to give you the confidence to approach this race to go for that target? And, and I've built that into to the training design. But, um, but for Jess, you know, like we've had to learn and through, you know, not ideal circumstances, like, you know, uh, stress fractures in her feet, a um, couple months out from Commonwealth Games, a couple months out from Rio Olympics, um, where she got a bronze in Glasgow and she, she got, well, 20th, probably up higher with a few, few people banned uh, since, um, you know, in the, in the marathon in Rio. So, but she had injuries going to both of those and they weren't ideal times, but, you know, just like many athletes, you know, when you're, when you're younger and you sort of, you don't have the experience she does now, she would have been looking at it and go, well, I need to do 160, 170, 180K a week. And I'd go, okay, but you can't. So mm. we started quantifying the cross training to, to go, okay, I, you know, and I, I, I used it a little bit to, to manipulate the situation. She had a rowing machine at home. I didn't really want her to use it. So I said, okay, every seven minutes on the rower equals one kilometer. Um, she knew she was going to, have to be on there a long time to get some value out of it. But it came down to a level of specificity, of course. And then, um, and then I think bike, we said every, every five minutes on the bike is, is worth one kilometre. Every four and a half minutes on the elliptical trainer is worth one kilometre. Um, and so she started to, when we calculated, so I'd have a little table at the end of her training program. We go, well, this equates to this many kilometres a week. So she started recognising, actually, I'm training a lot. And that's what I needed her to see. So her confidence, uh, it, it wasn't lacking because she knew she was training a lot and we were doing what we could. Similar approach taken to Perth. Um, she was in phenomenal shape at the time she got injured, probably more than likely why she did get injured. It was a lot of races were being cancelled. Um, every time a race would get cancelled, she was pretty eager and keen. You know, she was, I was, I was in Tokyo at the Olympics. She was sending me these training sessions. I was just blowing my mind, you know, how, how well is she going? But also, you know, she probably was taking a race approach and, and efforts into those training sessions and just hurt her after a while, just broke it down. I've also recognised since she's come back from pregnancy, she can tolerate a lot, but not for as long as what she could in the past. Mm. So to to allow that duration of intensity or within a preparation, we need to build cross training into it. So even though she's fit and healthy, we've actually built cross training into this one um, because one, it allows her, and, and this is what I'm talking about, a needs basis as well. Like sometimes she just can't get out and run because she's got a child at home yeah. to look after. She's got, um, a husband who works full time and is also an avid runner, you know, is an 800 meter runner, he's a state record holder in South Australia. And so there's a need to, to cross train because it's convenient, it's at home, and that can just replace a second run from time to time. Um, we also do recognize some of the benefits she did get from it. Um, but, you know, where we can run, we'll run because the most specific thing to running training is running. So, you know, if we can manage that and get all that done, we'll do it. So, yeah. But she, there wouldn't be other athletes in my group that would cross train anywhere near as much as Jen. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was just quite interesting when that when you posted on Twitter. I could imagine everybody's going crosstrainers.com. Where can I find the best one? And let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, in terms of experiences, um, it's always intrigued me. You know, if you've got an athlete who is making their first games, or you know, even first major city marathon, how do you go in with them and say, "Hey, look." go and enjoy the experience games would be harder because there's no guarantee it could happen again and i dare say you probably say 
you can always go back as a spectator later in life. So marathon, for example, is the last activity that goes on. So you can't really enjoy it. How do you, if I'm your athlete, how do you sit me down and say, okay, we're going in here. You're going here as an athlete. Don't get too carried away. You know, don't enjoy the village too much. Um, yeah. Just so, And as a coach, how does that look for you as well? Uh, different approach to different athletes. You know, I know Jess loves and enjoys the buzz of, an Olympic Games that that actually helps her come up a little bit more. She gets really excited running for a country, um, the little ceremonies and things. She enjoys those sort of things. Um, so if I took that away from her, it probably would have stressed her out more. Um, in in um, you know Madeline Heiner was kind of the opposite. She didn't want any of that stuff. She just wanted her own space. And you know even to the to the rule where um, you know when she got back into running, she didn't want to be an obsessive runner. So um she got into a habit of saying i'm gonna have a glass of wine not for every race and i said go for it she goes because that helps me feel normal and doesn't make me feel like you know i'm so obsessed with all of this she goes I, I don't know how i value spending all my time um just training to run around in circles you know is that really the best way of using my life and my values so matt clark was the same yeah no sorry i wasn't the same. matt clark was different to, to both of them where it was exciting this year in Tokyo because he got a call up so late. He'd, be, he'd been on a roller coaster ride trying to get there. You know, he just missed the qualified twice by less than less than a second. You know, the second time he missed it by point one three of a second. It was brutally hard for him to accept that emotionally. So you know, he needed to enjoy a little bit of the the Olympics vibe. Um, but it was definitely when we got into Tokyo, it was okay. I'll give you the day. You look around look at the village you'll see all the other athletes you'll see it is what it is they do a welcome ceremony to you and that's pretty cool and inspirational and then i grabbed him after that and said right now you've worked out the olympics is not disneyland i said it's apartment block and it, the village is just an apartment block with a couple of food courts where people eat i said that's all it is now we've got to get focused on the performance and some people will be able to do that some people won't um you do see athletes get overwhelmed by the, the buzz and the vibe of the Olympics. And, and as coaches, we're trying to control the controllables. And so have those discussions. Um, I think the, the benefit of going into an Olympics as a coach after you've been there previously, you know what to expect. And if we've ever found out the hardest thing for people to deal with is uncertainty, um, you know, you can provide a bit of clarity and certainty over that. You know, you could find people who would get stressed out, you know, if you're talking about major marathon, about things that might go wrong, like on, on your travels, a plane get delayed or you lose a bag or those sorts of things. You just have the expectation, hey, this stuff could happen. Uh, I remember a, a high performance director for Athletics Australia once said, you know, on a, and when we spoke down with staff, he said, you know, with a team of 90 plus, we can expect that at least one person's going to have a close relative die in the time that we're over there that's just the nature of the statistics of that many people traveling so let's be uh, let's recognize we're going to come up with against some adversity you know when we're going uh, from traveling from the holding camp into let's just expect that we're going to have to line up a lot you're going to have to wait for bags and all those sort of things it's about giving some cert well not certainties but creating some flexibility within their mindset so that everything doesn't have to go perfect now you talk about the olympics and you're right some people will go to one and never go to one, another one again. And so how do you get them to enjoy that and make the most of the moment? Well, at the end of the day, 
they want to enjoy it, but they'll enjoy it the most when they're performing at their best. So you do everything to support them to perform at their best. Um, enjoy it. Well, for some, it's the scariest experience of their life. For others, they're just buzzing. Um, and again, as a coach, you need to read that athlete and help them un understand them enough to be able to work out how to have those discussions with them. You know, um, and I think that's that's the key to what experience gives you. And that's that's hard. We recently did our, our learning from Tokyo series of Athletics Australia and and I interviewed the top eight coaches who coached athletes who were top eight and those who coached debuts. Um, and even for those coaches who had never been to an Olympics, they found that really confronting and uncomfortable. And I did too. London, I was shit scared and so worried about it getting things right or wrong or whatever have you. And to the point where I didn't enjoy the experience, I came home and everyone's going, how great was the Olympics, Adam? And I was going, freaking horrible. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know if I ever want to expose myself to that ever again. And I remember on the day of the race, um, getting caught up and going, okay, all right, I left my wife, my, uh, my mate who was there, they were all going to watch the marathon. I tried tickets to get into a grandstand area uh, on the mall in front of Buckingham Palace and, remember walking over all through security. I'm basically shaking. I'm nervous. I'm like, right, don't be nervous. Don't let Jess see that I'm nervous. And I didn't even know if I was going to see her or not. And she, just as I rocked up, she walked out to do a warm up, and she saw me and she goes, hi. And uh, I said, oh, hi, how are you? Everything good? And she's like, she's like, geez, you look nervous. I'm like, all right, <laughs> stuff that one up. Um, but I said, I just responded to her, I go, no, I'm not, a, I'm not nervous. I'm just excited because I know you're going to run well today. And, um, and you know, she had a, she had a really positive experience there but um yeah it was, it was a brutal learning curve and and one that many obviously a lot of coaches go through who, who coach in olympic games and that's where again you know i feel privileged to be in a role as a team coach or whatever have you to try to support those people um because i, I do reflect back on those times and recognize how hard it was and the the coaches or the the team managers who actually gave me the time to to help me perform my best as a coach it was really valuable to me and and hopefully i can offer that to others in the future and i suppose your role as a team coach like you're not there to coach other athletes you know you know when um Sinead has nick Badeau there you, you know you've yeah. spoken about having him as a mentor before so you know that she's sorted because he's in yeah. her camp and um how do you though approach that role where you are the overarching coach in this scenario? Because you look at team sport and, you know, if people come from state level to national level, that is their team coach. And they yeah. then listen to that person and no longer the state coach. What's the background in it? You know, do you sit down and go, righto, forget about what your coach told you. This is what, how it's going to be now. Or are you very much like, Hey, I'm steering a bigger ship, but you've got your, your main captain who's telling you where to go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always explain it as, as a team coach, you're the eyes and ears for the coach that can't be there because a lot of times it's just an access thing. You don't get a, an abundance of passes to get into the warm-up track. The, the whole athletic team only gets so many and it's really hard to distribute them and to fair, you know, everyone wants to have their coach there, um, but it's just not possible. So you, you do your best to, to fill in and it's not to, not to uh, give them the advice on how they should run and those sort of things. You know, if, and a lot of time now that I've done this role for, for many years, the, the coaches will talk to me and say, this is what I want from, uh, this, this is how I'm going to explain the race. Can you please reinforce that with them? 
um, or you know I'm on the ground what's it feel like do you feel they're stressed you know how do you how do you cope with those uh, you know how can we cope with that so I work very much in collaboration with their personal coach and and they are they are the key guide to me so um, I don't try to try to be their coach over there uh, but there's a lot of logistics also um, to to those things there you know it's especially if you're in the marathons, organising drink bottles, people to be on drink tables, all those sort of things, coordinating ice fests, all, all, all matter of things, right? And, um, and But also getting a good enough relationship with the athletes and their coaches to know how to deal with them in that environment. Some coaches will be really prescriptive and say, hey, can you tell them this at this time? Can you say this to them as they walk into the call room? And, you know, look, most of that stuff just makes the coach feel better that they've try to control or manage those things. By the time you get to that level, the athlete's pretty good at knowing exactly what they need, what they want and all the rest of it. And if they need to speak to the coach, just I'll, I'll dial them on the phone and they can talk to them. But rarely is that the case. And, and that's the thing, you know, you recognise and I speak to the coach beforehand, you need to prepare them to be there without you. I'm there to support them where they need me. Um, but ultimately, a level, a level of maturity in their performance to be able to manage themselves in that environment. And many of them are very good at that. I mean, they travel overseas and the likes without their coaches. So it's not a big deal. And I think any coach, you know, a lot of, I, as I said, you know, we're responsible for the environment as coaches. Uh-huh. Um, so again, I'm responsible for that environment in, the, in a team coach sense. So it's to keep away distractions, to minimize any stresses for them. Um, just to assist them where, where possible, might be keeping the time for them so they know when they've got to go to the call room. And if they're not really <laughs> conscious of the time to, you know, get them moving. And I've, I've, I've had to, on multiple occasions, pick up the spike go, I think we've got to get going to the call room now. Without going, <laughs> get your shit together. Let's go to the call room, you know? Um, so, you know, uh, just calmly trying to get them there without panicking and those sort of things. So no, you don't, you don't offer them the, this is what I reckon you do for training. This is, this is how long you're going to warm up for, those sort of things. They should have all those processes sorted. Um, but it, again, like I said, it comes down to relationships, reading the athlete, knowing what they need at the right time, um, and also you know, having that instruction and, and guidance from the coach to do so. Um, so it's really important to establish that in the months leading in rather than just, you know, it's really hard when you just meet someone couple of days out from one of the biggest races in their life and you're responsible for managing all of that. So you, you, you can do your general best, but um, yeah, ha- having a good relationship with someone makes it a lot easier. Uh, thanks mate, so much for your time and just sharing, you know, a little sc- a scratch of your learnings. Um, to finish off, I normally ask every guest um, what message they would have for their younger self. So if you had one and you can go back in time, what would it be? In a coaching sense or, or earlier? Oh, just any general life. You, how about doing both? Um, the coaching sense and then um, just even general life. Yeah, look, in, in a coaching sense, it'd be don't sweat small stuff. You know, often the small stuff doesn't make a difference. So, you know, get the big thing. Get Just take care of the major things and get them right. Um, in life, just back yourself. You know, I, I think um, it took me a long time to develop my confidence. Um, uh, it, you know, it took a long time to believe that I was capable of doing, you know, something at a, at a respectable level. And, and I was always chasing that. And I think I would have enjoyed the ride a lot better if I just backed myself a lot earlier on. And, and, I, and, I, and I like to hope that 
um, I support people to do that um, through my role more so now than than ever. Um, and yeah, it, yeah, I think that's as simple as that. Just back yourself, give yourself a shot. And I think your case and point that there shouldn't be a point in life where you have you have achieved something. You know, we were, we were talking about the the job application where it says you have to have five years. You know, you very much well rip the bandaid off and jump straight in. Um, and I think that's quite good advice that just back yourself in. Um, if you want something hard enough, just go and get. I know it's cliche, um, but mm. it does stand true um, when you see people like yourself actually doing it. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm the first to say I, I never got into coaching intending to do what I'm doing now. Um, the idea of it excited me, but I, I didn't ever think it was going to be a reality. And, and I certainly don't take it for granted for that reason. And like I said, I was that geeky kid that loved the Olympics. I've still got my Olympic facts books on my, on my, um, on my shelf here that I, that I read when I was a you know, 12-year-old. Um, I pinch myself to think that I've been given these opportunities and I, I feel very privileged and, I, and I'm very grateful and, and hope that I show respect for those opportunities. Well, thanks so much, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, finally got to sit down with you and it's an awesome way for me for, on behalf of the listeners to finish off the year and um, yeah, plenty of learnings to, to come from this, but just to share your experience has been highly appreciated from my side. No worries. Thanks, Erwin. Anytime.